Although Cuba was once again listed as a sponsor of terrorism in the State Department's annual report in May, the rationale read more like a justification for removing Cuba from the list. Every reason cited for Cuba's inclusion was followed by an explanation of how Cuban behavior had changed for the better. Nevertheless, when the administration sent its annual budget request for fiscal year 2014 to Capitol Hill in late May, it again requested $20 million for democracy promotion in Cuba. Although U.S. policy appeared to no longer be completely paralyzed by the predicament of Alan Gross, it remained tentative, cautious, and incremental, far from the bold stroke that Fidel Castro was hoping for from a second-term president. Real change in U.S.-Cuban relations would require vision and courage, qualities Obama had displayed in his push for comprehensive health care and immigration reform. Escaping fifty years of hostility between the United States and Cuba would by no means be easy or cost-free for the president. But, as Lyndon Johnson replied when warned that taking on civil rights would be too difficult and politically risky, well, what the hell's the presidency for? The more things change, the more they remain the same. Good intentions notwithstanding, eighteen months into Obama's second term, U.S. relations with Cuba were not much different from what they had been under his ten predecessors. To be sure, Obama's approach contrasted sharply with President George W. Bush's. The previous president's policy was premised on a Big Bang theory of change in Cuba. Convinced that Cuban leaders would never allow significant change, Bush officials sought to ratchet up economic pressure and fuel the internal opposition until the regime collapsed. Obama embraced the soft power instruments of people-to-people -people exchange and diplomatic engagement in the hope of fostering gradual, incremental change. If Washington responded positively to Cuban economic or political liberalization, it might set in motion a self-reinforcing virtuous circle of change in Cuba and improvement in bilateral relations. This strategy was less innovative than Obama's team imagined. Jimmy Carter's 1977 decision to improve relations by negotiating a series of reciprocal and sequential steps, and Bill Clinton's policy of calibrated response, and, after Helms-Burton, parallel positive steps, were all variations on the same theme. Despite being cloaked in the rhetoric of change, however, Obama's approach shared two premises common to U.S. policy since the end of the Cold War. One, significant progress in bilateral relations would come only if Cuba began to dismantle its political and economic systems, replacing them with a multi-party electoral democracy and a free market economy, and two, even the smallest U.S. steps toward a reduction in tension would have to be met by reciprocal steps from the Cuban side. Under Obama, the goal of U.S. policy was not phrased as confrontationally as it was under George W. Bush, but neither was it fundamentally different. At first, Obama's team hoped it could maintain principled support for democracy and human rights in Cuba without letting those commitments be an obstacle to improving bilateral relations. Eventual normalization of relations and lifting the embargo would still depend on domestic change in Cuba, unless and until the Helms-Burton law was repealed, but a lot could be accomplished short of that. However, Obama's insistence on quid pro quo reciprocity, defined in terms of Cuban domestic policy change, tied progress in bilateral relations directly to concessions the Cuban government was least willing to make. We have made it very clear that we could not do much more in dealing with Cuba unless Cuba changes, said Secretary Clinton after Obama's 2009 initiatives. The political prisoners need to be released. Free and fair elections need to be held. 
So we are opening up a dialogue with Cuba, but we are very clear that we want to see some fundamental changes within the Cuban regime. Even on issues in which the United States had important interests of its own at stake, the administration proved surprisingly timid. Progress was sparse due to a mixture of hope that going slow would provide some leverage to gain freedom for Alan Gross and fear of being pilloried on Capitol Hill for engaging with Cuba at all. Even those in the Obama administration who were genuinely interested in improving relations with Cuba had to fight a war on two fronts. They were exasperated with Cuban-American members of Congress for making any policy change so hard and with the Cuban government for not doing anything to make it easier. The only area in which the administration was willing to chance bold action was in the realm of people-to-people engagement. Obama went almost as far as he could under existing law by allowing all sorts of purposeful travel to Cuba, everything except pure tourism, which was prohibited by the Trade Sanctions Reform and Export Enhancement Act of 2000. One major advantage of people-to-people programs was that Washington could pursue them unilaterally without engaging the Cuban government at all. Thus, Obama's policy evolved, especially after the arrest of Alan Gross, very much in the pattern of Bill Clinton's policy after the 1996 shootdown of the Brothers to the Rescue Planes. With the opportunity for significant bilateral negotiations largely foreclosed, attention turned to -to people-to-people programs in the hope that they would build bonds between Cuban and U.S. civil society, a good thing in itself, and, in the best-case scenario, create a foundation to later go forward with other things, as a State Department official working on Cuba explained. A year and a half into his second term, Barack Obama had yet to free himself from the core assumptions that had locked U.S.-Cuban relations into an impregnable pattern of mutual recrimination and animosity for more than half a century. As a result, he was stuck in the same impasse as his predecessors. Sanctions against Cuba had produced nothing positive, but he was unwilling to run the political risk of trying something truly new. Ten presidents before him had tried in vain to untie this Gordian knot. Whether Obama could summon the courage to cut it during his second term remained an open question. 10. Intimate Adversaries, Possible Friends We both made mistakes, but it is time to put the past behind us. President Raul Castro to U.S. Congressional Delegation led by Senator Patrick Leahy, February 19, 2013. Mr. President, I am Castro, Raul said as he reached out to shake hands with the President of the United States. I know, Barack Obama replied, smiling. Their encounter lasted just a few seconds, but it was historic, the first time since 1959 that a U.S. President met publicly with the President of Cuba. Neither government was willing to say that the handshake implied any warming of relations, but the sheer normalcy of this simple gesture was itself unusual in a relationship long fraught with tension and distrust. Its symbolism was underscored by the occasion. The two leaders met at the December 10, 2013 memorial service for Nelson Mandela, where Obama praised the spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation Mandela exemplified. We can choose a world defined not by our differences, but by our common hopes, Obama intoned. We can choose a world defined not by conflict, but by peace and justice and opportunity. Cuba had been on Obama's mind of late. At a fundraising dinner in Miami a few weeks earlier, he acknowledged that important changes were underway on the island and expressed his frustration with the policy stalemate. We have to be creative, and we have to be thoughtful, 
and we have to continue to update our policies, he told his listeners. Keep in mind that when Fidel Castro came to power, I was just born, so the notion that the same policies that we put in place in 1961 would somehow still be as effective in the age of the Internet, Google, and world travel doesn't make sense. Returning from South Africa, Raoul too expressed his hope that Cuba and the United States might establish civilized relations, and reiterated his offer to open a respectful dialogue with Washington. If we really want to make progress in bilateral relations, he told Cuba's National Assembly, we must learn to mutually respect our differences and get used to coexisting peacefully. As the remarks by both presidents suggested, beneath the complex knot of conflict between Cuba and the United States lies a rich vein of mutual concerns, shared culture, and common humanity. Across half a century, their turbulent relations have been marked by the interplay of interests in conflict and interests in common. Since 1959, Washington has tried everything except direct intervention to force Cuba back into the political and economic orbit of the United States. Cuba has done everything to maintain the independent, socialist path Fidel Castro charted in 1959-60. Nevertheless, there has always been a countervailing impetus toward rapprochement. The very same closeness that made the conflict so intense also created an incentive in both capitals to find ways to cooperate, especially when coercion and defiance alone simply prolonged the conflict rather than resolving it. These closest of enemies, as retired U.S. diplomat Wayne Smith called Cuba and the United States, needed each other's cooperation to deal effectively with a range of issues important to them both. Yet for more than fifty years, Cuba and the United States have not been able to consummate a reconciliation. The two nations remain stuck in a relationship of hostility that is both a relic of the Cold War and an impediment to the national interests of both. Why hasn't there been more progress toward better relations after half a century? First, real conflicts of interest lie at the heart of the dispute. By severing Cuba's economic and political dependence on the United States, Fidel Castro did serious harm to U.S. economic interests on the island and to U.S. political interests across the hemisphere. Cuba's alliance with the Soviet Union challenged U.S. security interests, symbolized most obviously by the 1962 Missile Crisis, but also manifested in Cuban efforts to extend its revolutionary socialist model abroad. As the State Department explained in 1964, the primary danger we face in Castro is in the impact the very existence of his regime has upon the leftist movement in many Latin American countries. The simple fact is that Castro represents a successful defiance of the U.S., a negation of our whole hemispheric policy of almost a century and a half. On the Cuban side, Washington's policy of economic strangulation and covert subversion threatened the revolution's very existence. Havana built its security around a strategic alliance with the Soviet Union to deter U.S. attack and the promotion of socialism abroad to expand the community of like-minded states willing to stand shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with Cuba. These core principles were not open for discussion, as Fidel Castro said repeatedly in both public and private. When Washington pressed Cuba to abandon the whole architecture of its foreign policy as the price of better relations with the United States, Castro refused. With the end of the Cold War, U.S. security interests dissipated, giving way to political ones. Washington's long-standing conditions for improving relations, that Cuba reduce military ties with Moscow and stop supporting revolution abroad, 
were replaced by the demand that Cuba repudiate the core tenets of the revolution by restoring capitalism and adopting a multi-party liberal democracy. We keep moving the goalposts, observed Wayne Smith. For Cuba, the core ideological conflict with the United States has always been the revolution's adamant nationalism in the face of U.S. efforts to return Cuba to its pre-1959 dependency, a fear reinforced after the end of the Cold War by Washington's preoccupation with how Cuba runs its internal affairs. Ironically, the end of the Cold War made reconciliation harder rather than easier. The real security issues at stake when Cuba served as an ally of the Soviet Union gave Washington an incentive to pursue coexistence. Absent compelling security interests, that incentive was much reduced. The most serious U.S. attempts to normalize relations took place during the Cold War under Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. Kennedy's 1963 initiative could be counted as well, though it was just getting underway when it was cut short by his assassination. No president since has made a comparable effort. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama tried to improve relations but nevertheless insisted that full normalization would have to await fundamental changes in Cuba's internal political and economic order. Ronald Reagan, George H. W. Bush, and George W. Bush were openly committed to regime change, not reconciliation, though even they found reason to talk with Havana about a range of common interests. The absence of compelling foreign policy reasons to normalize relations with Havana also opened the way for domestic politics, that is, the Cuban-American lobby in Florida, to hold greater sway. As Brent Scowcroft, national security advisor to Presidents Gerald Ford and George H.W. Bush admitted, Cuba is a domestic issue for the United States, and not a foreign policy issue. Does Cuba Want Better Relations? One of the most striking things about the long history of antagonism between Cuba and the United States is how often the Cubans have tried to find a way to bridge the divide. Although Fidel Castro professed to believe that the imperialist United States could never accept Cuban socialism, every time a new president took office in Washington, Castro held out an olive branch to see if the administration, no matter how conservative or antagonistic, might be open to better relations. To be sure, Fidel Castro made a successful political career at home and abroad, portraying himself as David in battle with the imperialist Goliath. As Che Guevara told Richard Goodwin in 1961, the Bay of Pigs proved to be a political bonanza, allowing Fidel to wrap the revolution's socialist agenda in the flag of Cuban nationalism. Castro himself was more blunt. The revolution has to fight. Combat is what makes revolutions strong, he told an audience in early 1961. A revolution that is not attacked is probably not a true revolution. A revolution that does not confront an enemy runs the risk of falling asleep, of growing weak. Like armies hardening themselves, revolutions need to confront an enemy. Decades later, a more philosophical Fidel acknowledged that battling the United States had its political advantages, even as he argued for an end to the confrontation. The United States would benefit more than Cuba from normal relations, he argued. If the United States makes peace with us, it will take away a little of our prestige, our influence, our glory. At certain moments, other Cuban interests clearly outweighed better relations with the United States. Castro calculated that Cuba had more to gain in its relations with Moscow and its standing in the Third World by intervening in Africa in the 1970s. 
Those interventions, which happened at moments when Washington was sincerely interested in moving toward normalization, led some observers to conclude that Castro did not really want better relations. Six former U.S. presidents tried to negotiate Cuba into accommodation. All failed, the CIA concluded in 1982. The very nature of the Castro regime precludes anything but an adversary relationship between Havana and Washington. This adversary relationship will not change as long as Castro is in power. This notion was reinforced by the shoot-down of the Brothers to the Rescue planes in 1996, at a time when Clinton was hoping to at least improve relations, if not normalize them. It almost appeared that Castro was trying to force us to maintain the embargo as an excuse for the economic failures of his regime, Bill Clinton concluded in his memoir. The arrest of Alan Gross in 2009, after Obama had announced his intention to improve relations, turned the idea that Cuba did not want better relations into a truism among U.S. officials. If you look at any opening to Cuba, you can almost always chart how the Castro regime does something to try to stymie it, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton argued after the gross arrest. On the other side of the historical ledger, however, substantial evidence indicated that Castro was in fact serious about wanting normal relations. Although he declared early on that Cuba would never negotiate while the embargo remained a dagger at our throat, he soon backed off that absolutist position to negotiate the release of the Bay of Pigs prisoners and a wide variety of other agreements over the next five decades. Whenever Havana and Washington engaged in talks on narrow issues, Castro tried to parley them into negotiations about the core issue of the embargo. He first raised the idea of dialogue about normalizing relations to James Donovan as they finished negotiating the release of the Bay of Pigs prisoners. Over the years, U.S. negotiators certainly thought Cuba was serious about normalization because they repeatedly offered to expand talks on narrow issues into negotiations about the embargo as a way of enticing Cuba to make concessions up front. In 1980, Peter Tarnoff offered Fidel new negotiations on normalization in Carter's second term if Castro would end the Marielle migration crisis. In 1984, Washington hinted that Cuban concessions on migration would lead to better relations and a broader dialogue, and then reneged once the migration agreement was signed. In 1988, the State Department explicitly promised that Cuban cooperation in the Southern African negotiations would lead to a broader dialogue on bilateral issues, and Washington reneged again. In 1994, Clinton promised Castro that Cuban concessions to end the rafters crisis would lead to a broader dialogue about the embargo. Cuba made the concessions, but Clinton never followed through. Over the years, there has been a long trail of broken commitments from Washington. If anything, the historical record suggests that the Cubans have been too eager to negotiate and too gullible in believing U.S. promises, which time after time were made but not kept. If U.S. officials could point to evidence that Havana did not really want reconciliation, Cuban officials could just as easily point to evidence that Washington was disingenuous in offering it. Finally, Raul Castro is not Fidel. Whereas Fidel took a certain satisfaction in defying the United States and exploited U.S. hostility to rally nationalist sentiment, Raul has focused on Cuba's domestic problems. Anti-U.S. diatribes feature much less prominently in his speeches, and he blames Cuba's economic problems on the shortcomings of Cuban policy rather than the embargo. If Fidel was motivated to maintain an acrimonious relationship with Washington for domestic political reasons, 
Raoul is not. The end of the Cold War strengthened Cuba's incentive to seek normal ties with its northern neighbor. Lifting the embargo would benefit the Cuban economy, and normal diplomatic recognition would reduce the security threat posed by the United States. U.S. presidents arguably have had a greater domestic political incentive, electoral votes in Florida, to maintain hostile relations than Cuban leaders have. Lessons from the Past, Prospects for the Future President Obama's second term appeared to offer usually favorable conditions for improving U.S.-Cuban relations. With no need for the president to worry about re-election and the Cuban-American electorate embracing more moderate policies, domestic politics posed less of an obstacle than at any time since the end of the Cold War. Moreover, with every passing year, the United States has paid a growing diplomatic price for its static Cuba policy, especially in Latin America. In Cuba, historic economic reforms were moving the island toward a mixed economy akin to Vietnam's, and incipient political decompression allowed more space for open debate and a more robust civil society. These changes, undertaken in response to domestic necessity rather than U.S. demands, were nevertheless moving Cuba in directions long cited by Washington as necessary for better relations. To exert any positive influence on the trajectory of Cuba's evolution, however, Washington needed to engage, not just with Cuban society, but with Cuba's government. Eager to put Cuba on a more solid footing before passing the torch to the next generation of leaders, Raul Castro not only initiated an ambitious reform program, but also offered unconditional talks with Washington. After Raul Castro steps down in 2018, when his current term as president ends, it may well be harder for new, untested leaders who lack the legitimacy of the revolutionary regime's founders to make peace with Washington. Just as only Nixon could go to China, only a Castro can come to Washington. As President Obama and his successors consider whether and how to engage with Cuba, the experience of ten presidents before them offers some useful lessons. The discontinuity from one administration to the next has made these lessons difficult for U.S. policymakers to recognize. Eager to promote the new president's agenda, every foreign policy team looks forward, not back. Ricardo Alarcón, who led Cuban delegations negotiating with the United States from the 1980s to 2003, remarked on how little institutional memory the State Department seemed to carry over from one administration to the next. During his years as negotiator, he noted wryly, the only person on the Cuban delegation who changed was the translator. On the U.S. side, the only person who remained the same was the translator. With the benefit of more than 50 years of hindsight, we can identify a number of lessons from past dialogues that can guide future ones. Lesson 1. Even at moments of intense hostility, there have always been reasons and opportunities for dialogue. The intensity of hostility between Washington and Havana has waxed and waned, ranging from concerted efforts to fully normalize relations to actions that nearly eradicated any sort of dialogue. But every U.S. president since Eisenhower has seen fit to negotiate with the Cuban government to some extent. In the midst of the missile crisis, Kennedy sought to open a channel of communication with Castro. Despite Cuban interventions in Africa, both Ford and Carter were willing to continue a dialogue. At the height of the wars in Central America, Reagan sent secret envoys to test Cuba's willingness to de-escalate. Indeed, sometimes the very intensity of conflict and the imminent threat of violent confrontation was the catalyst for communication.
Lesson 2. Although Cuban leaders have always been willing to talk, they instinctively resist making concessions to U.S. demands. During the Cold War, Washington had three core requirements for normalizing relations, all focusing on Cuban foreign policy. Cuba had to reduce, if not eliminate, its military relationship with the Soviet Union, stop supporting revolution in Latin America, and withdraw its military forces from Africa. When the end of the Cold War resolved all these issues, George H.W. Bush demanded that Cuba change the nature of its social and political system, accepting a free market economy and multi-party liberal democracy. During the 1970s, Fidel Castro repeatedly refused to negotiate Cuban solidarity with ideological comrades in Latin America or Africa. To Castro, proletarian internationalism was a foundational principle of Cuban foreign policy, not something to be negotiated away in return for some quid pro quo from Washington. The most he ever conceded was that if Cuba and the United States had normal relations, that relationship would constrain Cuba's actions abroad. When U.S. demands about Cuban foreign policy were replaced by demands about Cuba's internal affairs, Fidel, and later Raul Castro, reacted with even greater indignation. As Che Guevara told Kennedy aide Richard Goodwin in 1961, Cuba would never abandon the type of society the revolution was building. Fifty years later, Raul Castro was still sending Washington that same message. Lesson 3. Nevertheless, Cuba has been willing to take steps responsive to U.S. concerns so long as those steps come at Havana's own initiative, not as explicit concessions. I can assure you that we would never decide anything as a function of a precondition imposed by the United States, Carlos Rafael Rodriguez said to Peter Tarnoff in 1978. The pride of small countries, which can even push them to make the wrong decision at times, and their feelings of dignity and sensitivity must be borne in mind. Yet even on internal issues they regarded as sacrosanct, Cuban leaders were willing to respond to U.S. concerns so long as Washington did not pose them as explicit demands. Castro released more than 3,000 political prisoners in response to Carter's human rights policy, though just 12 months earlier he had publicly rejected any such concession when Carter posed it as a condition of normalization. Similarly, Raul Castro unilaterally released most of Cuba's remaining political prisoners in 2010, knowing that this was an issue that Obama cared about. However, when Washington has demanded linkage between Cuban concessions and U.S. steps toward normalization, Havana has rejected them. Rather than linkage, a more successful approach has been parallel positive steps, a strategy first recommended by Ambassador Byron Pete Bakey in 1968. The United States takes a unilateral positive action and suggests to Cuban officials what steps they could take that would be regarded favorably in Washington. Such reciprocal steps have proved successful in building trust and cooperation in areas of mutual interest such as people-to-people -people exchanges, hurricane prediction and tracking, counter-narcotics operations, and environmental protection. This sort of confidence building may be necessary to set the stage for a constructive dialogue, but will not by itself lead to major change in the relationship. Gradual reciprocal actions can lead to diplomatic reconciliation only if both sides have the political will to reconcile, political will that thus far has been lacking. Lesson 4. Small successes do not necessarily lead to big ones. Successful talks between Washington and Havana have been about relatively narrow issues. 
Sometimes they were straightforward bilateral issues on which both sides had a clear interest in cooperation, migration, fishing and maritime boundaries, anti-hijacking, coast guard search and rescue, counter-narcotics operations, for example. But even complex multilateral issues, like those involving Southern Africa, were amenable to agreement. Nevertheless, successful talks have always been narrower in scope and less complex than the issue of full normalization. Policymakers in both Havana and Washington have shared the presumption that progress on issues of mutual interest could provide a bridge to progress toward normalizing relations. Che Guevara was the first to broach the concept of using secondary issues as a starting point for dialogue, as a way to build mutual confidence. Fidel said the same thing when he was negotiating with James Donovan. Carter began his approach to Cuba with talks about fishing boundaries and Coast Guard cooperation. Clinton began with immigration. Obama's pledge to pursue a new policy of engagement began with a dialogue about migration, narcotics control, and educational exchange. Despite significant successes on narrow issues, the two sides have never been able to translate the momentum of these tertiary agreements into real progress toward normalization. This avenue, like the avenue of positive parallel actions, can lead to normalization only if both sides have requisite political will. Lesson 5. Cuban leaders have had a hard time distinguishing between gestures and concessions. Tell the President that he should not interpret my conciliatory attitude, my desire for discussions, as a sign of weakness, Castro advised in a secret message to Lyndon Johnson in early 1964. The Cubans, as the CIA pointed out in a July 1975 intelligence assessment of Castro's negotiating posture, worry that even small steps on their part may be misinterpreted in Washington as exploitable concessions. Thus, Cuba wants the United States to take not just the first step toward reconciliation, but the first several. Whenever Cuba engaged in talks with the United States, Castro was at pains to make it clear that he was doing so from a position of strength. In fact, at times he seemed to go out of his way to be defiant, for example, stepping up Cuba's advocacy of Puerto Rican independence in 1975 during Kissinger's secret dialogue, despite U.S. sensitivity on the issue. Announcing the 1984 migration agreement to the Cuban people, he ended by saying, We are not in a hurry to discuss any other problems. We are calm, serene, firm, and strong. We are not going to plead for anything from anyone. Our constructive, positive, and receptive attitude does not imply an eagerness to negotiate. To make matters worse, Havana discounts U.S. gestures that serve U.S. interests. When Kissinger decided not to oppose the OAS lifting sanctions against Cuba in 1975, hoping Cuba would take this as a gesture of good faith, Havana instead saw it as Washington merely trying to cut its diplomatic losses in Latin America, where sanctions were increasingly unpopular, an empty gesture Cuban diplomat Ramon Sanchez Parodi called it. In 2009, when Obama decided not to oppose the OAS repeal of the 1962 resolution suspending Cuba, Havana had exactly the same interpretation. When he lifted limits on Cuban-American travel, Cuban leaders regarded it as a political debt to the Cuban-American community, not a gesture to Cuba. Washington, for its part, has wanted Cuba to take significant steps to give the White House political cover from domestic critics by showing that a policy of engagement pays dividends. When U.S. gestures fail to elicit significant reciprocal steps from Havana, the White House risks looking soft. 
This worry preoccupied Kissinger, Carter, Clinton, and Obama, making them reluctant to undertake dramatic moves toward Cuba that might have broken the Alphonse Gaston stalemate. It is a question of domestic politics, Kissinger conceded as far back as 1974. We need something we can use to explain better relations domestically. Lesson 6. Timing is everything. There has never been a moment when both sides wanted to normalize relations on terms acceptable to the other. At key moments when Washington was motivated to reconcile, Cuba subordinated its desire for normal relations to its policies in Africa and Latin America. At moments when Cuba's interest in normalization was strongest, U.S. presidents were either uninterested or intimidated by the Cuban-American lobby. Of late, Havana has been more interested in improving relations than has Washington. Since assuming the presidency in 2006, Raul Castro has repeatedly offered to open a dialogue with Washington on all issues dividing the two countries. The economic benefits from normalizing relations are substantial at a time when the Cuban economy is undergoing major restructuring. In the areas of disaster response, medical cooperation, and environmental protection, the Cuban side has been consistently interested in extending and deepening cooperation, while the U.S. side has been reluctant. Other areas, such as counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, and migration, show a similar pattern. The United States has been content to live with perpetual antagonism toward Cuba because the costs have been relatively low. And changing the policy entails domestic political risks that successive presidents have judged too high. Obama, while acknowledging that the policy of hostility has been futile, has been no more willing than his predecessors to break this impasse. Lesson 7. An incremental approach to normalization has not worked. Kissinger tried it, Carter tried it, Clinton thought about trying it, albeit without much enthusiasm. Obama started to try it, but set unrealistic conditions. In his secret talks with the Cubans, Kissinger proposed a package deal, a series of discreet, reciprocal steps leading to normalization, and actually took a few initial ones. The process stalled when Cuba failed to reciprocate and sent troops to Angola instead. Carter directed his government to move toward normalizing relations by negotiating reciprocal and sequential steps, but after Cuba sent troops to Ethiopia, the president insisted that Havana had to withdraw from Africa for the process to move forward. Clinton announced a policy of calibrated response in which Washington would respond to incremental positive steps by Cuba with positive steps of its own, but the Helms-Burton legislation eviscerated that approach. Obama took some initial positive steps and then called for Cuban reciprocity, but insisted that Cuban steps had to be movements toward democracy, which Havana rejected. History has demonstrated that the quid pro quo approach does not work. Incrementalism has three fatal flaws. First, it is slow, and confounding issues are likely to arise that disrupt the process of building mutual confidence, making further progress difficult. Angola under Ford, Ethiopia and the Marielle migration crisis under Carter, the Rafters migration crisis and Brothers to the Rescue shoot-down under Clinton, the arrest of Alan Gross under Obama. Second, incremental steps do not fundamentally change the relationship and are therefore easily reversed. Ford lifted the embargo on trade with Cuba by subsidiaries of U.S. corporations in third countries. The 1992 Cuban Democracy Act reimposed it. Carter lifted the ban on travel to Cuba. Reagan reimposed it. Clinton relaxed restrictions on people-to-people -people exchanges. 
George W. Bush reimposed them. Obama relaxed them again and then faced congressional efforts to reimpose them. Finally, although gradualism seems politically safe because each incremental step is small and therefore ought to be less controversial, in fact, an incremental approach prolongs the political fight with domestic opponents, who are no less vociferous in opposing small steps than large ones. They, like policymakers, understand that small steps can lead down the slippery slope, building momentum for normalization, so they battle to derail the process at every juncture. Every incremental step gives them a new opportunity to halt the process, and they only need to win once. With U.S. congressional elections every two years and presidential elections every four, an incremental approach inevitably becomes fodder for electoral politics. The alternative is a bold stroke that fundamentally changes the relationship, even if it does not solve every issue, and leaves opponents facing a fait accompli. Nixon's trip to China is the paradigmatic example. Lesson 8. Domestic politics is always an issue on both sides. Major policy changes always require aligning policy options with politics. A brilliant policy solution is worthless if you cannot assemble a winning political coalition behind it. Fifty years of failure for the policy of hostility toward Cuba is not in itself sufficient reason to change it when there are significant domestic political costs and no pressing foreign policy reasons compelling change. From the beginning, there have been people in both capitals interested in improving U.S.-Cuban relations and those opposed. Domestic opposition has been a tougher obstacle in Washington than in Havana because the U.S. political system is a democracy, with many veto points designed to make policy change difficult. From Philip Bonsall's losing battle with Eisenhower conservatives like Thomas Mann to Cyrus Vance's bitter rivalry with Zbigniew Brzezinski to Chester Crocker's outflanking Elliot Abrams on the Southern Africa talks, advocates of rapprochement have always had to fend off domestic opponents while maneuvering to start and sustain a dialogue. In the 60s and 70s, opposition to improving relations with Cuba came mostly from cold warriors inside the foreign policy bureaucracy. In the 80s, 90s, and beyond, it came mostly from conservative Cuban-Americans. The end of the Cold War reduced the first obstacle. Changing demographics in the Cuban-American community have gradually eroded the second as demonstrated by Obama's success in the 2008 and 2012 elections. But for the foreseeable future, any U.S. president who contemplates changing relations with Havana will have to pay a political price, in Congress, if not in Florida. In Havana, decision-making was less complex. Fidel by himself could make the decision to warm relations with Washington or plunge them back into the deep freeze. But even Fidel did not operate in a political vacuum. In 2001, Raul Castro hinted that others in the revolutionary leadership saw significant risk in normalization. It would be in imperialism's interest to try to normalize relations as much as possible during Fidel's life, he said, because afterward, it will be more difficult. As the second most powerful historic leader of the revolution, Raul effectively established his own authority in Cuba's collective leadership after Fidel retired and he continued to push for better relations with Washington. But Raul has announced his intention to step down as president in 2018, passing the torch to a new generation of leaders, none of whom will have the dominant authority or freedom of action enjoyed by Fidel and Raul. Lesson 9. Neither side really comprehends the other's bureaucracy, so the opportunities for misunderstanding abound. 
The secret dialogue initiated by Kissinger had a Rashomon quality. Each side saw in the slow responses of the other reason to doubt its seriousness. The Department of Justice's slow processing of former political prisoners for entry to the United States during the Carter years convinced Castro that Washington was deliberately trying to destabilize Cuba by stranding the ex-prisoners. That set the stage for the Mariel migration crisis. When Cuban officials complained repeatedly about Brothers to the Rescue violating Cuban airspace, they assumed Clinton would put a stop to the provocations. When the flights continued, the Cubans regarded it as a deliberate provocation, rather than a byproduct of the convoluted federal bureaucracy. When George W. Bush's democracy promotion programs targeting Cuba continued into the Obama administration, the Cubans concluded that Obama's rhetoric about a new Cuba policy was insincere, rather than recognizing that bureaucratic momentum carries established programs forward despite changes in administrations. At moments when the Cubans were willing to make significant concessions, Washington sometimes missed the signals. During the marathon secret talks in the Carter years, the Cubans steadfastly refused to negotiate away their support for African allies, but they hinted they would work with the United States to find diplomatic solutions that would enable them to bring their troops home thus accomplishing Washington's main objective. Brzezinski did not recognize this as an opening, and it took Chester Crocker months to convince the Reagan administration to seize the opportunity. When it did, Cuba helped broker a Southern African peace accord. Havana made similar suggestions to both Reagan and Bush on peace proposals in Central America. When Bush officials finally decided to explore the Cuban offer, their effort was cut short by the advent of T.B. Marti and the defeat of the Sandinistas in the 1990 Nicaraguan election. U.S. diplomats have to listen carefully to how their Cuban counterparts frame issues, alert for oblique hints of flexibility, even on issues that the Cubans have sworn publicly never to negotiate. Lesson 10. Cuba wants to be treated as an equal, with respect for its national sovereignty. Like the Melians during the Peloponnesian War, Cubans refuse to accept the idea that great powers— especially the United States, should be able to play the game of international politics by different rules from everyone else's. Washington, on the other hand, has long felt entitled to do whatever real politic demands, especially in Latin America, its own backyard. This hegemonic presumption, as scholar Abraham F. Lowenthal termed it, has been especially strong with regard to Cuba, a virtual possession of the United States for the first half of the 20th century. That very idea inflamed Cuban nationalism, laying one of the ideological cornerstones for the revolution in 1959. Perhaps it is because the United States is a great power, it feels it can do what it wants, Castro said to Peter Tarnoff and Robert Pastor in 1978. Perhaps it is idealistic of me, but I never accepted the universal prerogatives of the United States. I never accepted and never will accept the existence of a different law and different rules. Carlos Rafael Rodriguez made the same point to Al Haig when they met in Mexico in 1981. Frankly speaking, we do not understand why the United States, merely because it happens to be, at the present time, one of the most powerful states, can have a right which we, being a small country, do not have, Rodriguez said. I believe that it is irrational to hold such a position. Irrational or not, Washington's position has long echoed Athens. The strong do what they will, the weak suffer what they must. 
In late 1959, Havana responded to a diplomatic protest from Washington with a long recitation of the history of U.S. domination of the island, concluding, The Cuban government and the Cuban people are anxious to live in peace and harmony with the government and the people of the United States, but on the basis of mutual respect and reciprocal benefits. This theme has echoed across half a century of U.S.-Cuban relations. In 1986, Fidel told the delegates to the Third Congress of the Cuban Communist Party, As we have demonstrated many times, Cuba is not remiss to discussing its prolonged differences with the United States and to go out in search of peace and better relations between our people. But that would have to be on the basis of the most unrestricted respect for our condition as a country that does not tolerate shadows on its independence for whose dignity and sovereignty entire generations of Cubans have fought and sacrificed themselves. This would be possible only when the United States decides to negotiate with seriousness and is willing to treat us with a spirit of equality, reciprocity, and the fullest mutual respect. In his first public statement after assuming the presidency in 2006, Raul Castro quoted this passage and reiterated its continuing relevance. Over the next five years, he repeated the same point over and over. Cuba's offer to negotiate with the United States rested on the sole condition that the talks be conducted in a spirit of equality, reciprocity, and the fullest mutual respect. Yet treating Cuba with the respect due a sovereign nation was the hardest thing for Washington to do. The long history of Cuba's subordination to the United States before 1959 has weighed on the minds of policymakers on both sides of the Florida Strait. Successive U.S. presidents could not reconcile themselves to Fidel Castro's apostasy, his rejection of the American way of life, and with it, U.S. influence. They held fast to John Quincy Adams's belief that Cuba was, by geography and by destiny, a natural partner of the United States that would eventually return to the U.S. orbit. Cuba's revolutionary leaders feared nothing so much as the possibility that Washington would succeed in reclaiming dominion over the island, thwarting their determination to secure Cuba's sovereign independence, just as the United States thwarted José Martí a century earlier. To finally end the animosity and fear that has characterized U.S.-Cuban relations since 1959, policymakers in Washington need to accept that Cuba in the 21st century will never again be the dependent, semi-sovereign Cuba that it was in the 19th and early 20th. In that regard, the revolution of 1959 has proved irreversible. Policymakers in Havana need to trust that reconciliation with the United States is possible without putting at risk Cuba's national independence, which Cubans made a revolution to secure. The closeness of Cuba and the United States, which has been the source of so much of their antagonism, has also provided the impetus for cooperation and reconciliation. In a century when the most pressing problems transcend national boundaries, near neighbors cannot afford perpetual hostility. With every passing day, Cuba and the United States become ever more closely intertwined, as Cubans buy wheat from U.S. farmers in the Midwest, as Cuban and U.S. citizens travel more freely back and forth, and as Cubans and Cuban-Americans knit back together the cultural, financial, and family ties severed by the revolution in 1959. The history of dialogue between Cuba and the United States since 1959 demonstrates that it is not only possible to replace sterile hostility with reconciliation, but preferable for the national and international interests of both nations. José Martí, 
whose eloquently expressed suspicions about U.S. imperial designs on Cuba inspired a young Fidel Castro's nationalism, nevertheless saw the possibility of a relationship between the United States and Cuba based on equality. There is that other America, North America, that is not ours, and whose enmity it is neither wise nor viable to encourage, Marti wrote a few months before his death. However, with firm propriety and an astute independence, it is not impossible, and indeed it is useful, to be friends. This concludes Back Channel to Cuba by William M. Leo Grand and Peter Cornblue. Narrated by Robertson Dean. Copyright 2014 by the University of North Carolina Press. This unabridged audiobook is published by arrangement with the University of North Carolina Press and was produced in the year 2015 by Tantor Media Incorporated, which holds the copyright thereto. Please visit Tantor.com for more information on our growing library of unabridged audiobooks and to take advantage of special offers, or call toll-free 877-7-TANTOR to request a catalog.